0: Hello, I'm Matt Ringrose and welcome to Very Vedic. I'm going to be answering the questions we all have about life today using the oldest wisdom on the planet, the ancient Vedic texts from India, the Vedas. They were written over 6,000 years ago with one purpose, to help us. This knowledge has the potential to free us from suffering and allow us to live our fullest lives. And that's why I created Very Vedic to share it with you. I'm a Vedic meditation teacher and the founder of Bondo Meditation Center. And this season I'm joined by my student Anna. If you're keen to learn how to meditate or you have a question you'd like answered, DM me on Instagram at Bondo Meditation or email info at meditation.com.au Okay, here we go.
1: Hello Matt. Hello Anna. Hello.
0: How are you? <laughs> I'm pretty good. Um, you've been away for a while. It's been a long time between podcasts.
1: I know. I've I've missed this very much. What have I've, you
0: been? What have you been up to?
1: I went away for a couple of weeks uh-huh. and, and had a, had a big adventure, which was really fun. And um, yeah, I I guess a lot has been coming up over the past couple of months. Really, a lot of a lot of life shifts. A, a lot of Um, letting go a lot of new stuff happening it's been it's been a pretty big time and pretty uh, wonderful and also moments of (laughs) fear (laughs) um that comes with letting go (laughs) yeah all of it um but you know something that's been coming up is the idea of creativity um because creativity has been actually a really important part of the past couple of months and, and moving through kind of everything that's been going on, um, especially in the form of writing. And I just want to learn a little bit more about it from the Vedic perspective. What is creativity? Um, is, it, is it important? And where does it come from?
0: This is good because this is the experience I've been having as well. I've noticed more and more that when I don't have creativity in my life, that joy starts to fade away. Um, Even things that would normally give me pleasure start to feel a bit more flat when there's not enough creativity. So I've started to recognize the value of creativity just through my own personal experience. So it's a really, really good thing to explore. And the Vedic view aligns with this. The Vedic view says that creativity is essential if we are to experience love. If we are to experience abundance. And actually, ultimately, creativity is essential for our, our actual survival. So, if we're going to look at creativity, we just need a quick recap on the creation, maintenance, and destruction setup, which we talked about in the very first podcast in the first series. So, the Vedic view is that there are three interbalancing, interrelating forces creation, maintenance, and destruction. And they're all there. None of them are bad. They're all good. Um, And they help each other out and balance each other out. So at various different points, creation will be primary and they'll be most predominating. And at other times, maintenance will be more predominating. At other times, destruction. And as humans, basic rule of thumb is if we want to be happy, healthy and useful, um, we need to have our attention most on creation. When we do that, maintenance stays secondary and we can have a bit of attention on that, but not as much. And destruction will take care of itself. Um, The problem comes when we start to put too much attention on maintenance and have that sense that we need to sustain everything, not lose things, and that becomes our constant preoccupation. And this leads to a stagnation, which causes decay, deterioration, and a losing of abundance. So this starts to give us an idea of why creativity and creation plays such an important role in our lives and how we should not overlook its importance.
1: Okay, so where does creativity come from? And does everybody have access to it in an equal way?
0: Um, So where does creation come from? All creative impulses, all songs, all books, all new ideas or creative ideas all come up out of a place Of pure conscious intelligence a subtle layer of consciousness where all ideas originate and they come up and they come through us to find their expression in the relative world so the universe consciousness needs our nervous systems in order to express its particular ideas and what it's looking to do through the creativity is to create beauty and the precursors for unity and love experiences. So that place of pure creativity is the place we touch in meditation. Each time we go into the more subtle layers of consciousness in meditation, we make contact with that place of pure creative intelligence, and then we come out a little bit more infused with that each time. My dad, who's a poet, um, and has been a poet before and after learning Vedic meditation, says that when he sits down to write a poem, it's like, in a way, he's lowering a bucket down in a well. And then he's not sure what's going to come up. And when it comes up, it's full of a subject or there's some subject in there to write about, which might be a fish or a rabbit he saw, somebody he met in 1972, etc. And his experience is that since he's been meditating, doing Vedic meditation twice a day, that when he puts the bucket down into the well and pulls it back up again, there are more things in there. So this shows how we can start to create a more intimate relationship with that creative field and start to be given more jobs, um, more opportunities to express that creative field in the relative world.
1: So would you say that creativity never does come from us, it always comes through us?
0: This is the Vedic view, that we are not the authors and the best creators, those creative artists that best understand that they're not the authors, um, in on this little secret, it's like there's a wave of something, that kind of like this subtle wave which moves through us, inspiring us, But that doesn't come from us. And the more aware we are that we are not the author, the more we can work with these forces and be the most productive outlet for them.
1: A a lady that I love listening to, her name's Elizabeth Gilbert. She's my favourite author and she's just, I just adore her. And um, she has this TED Talk and I listened to it ages ago, so I'm sure I'll get some parts of it wrong, but... She talks about I think they're called daemons and there were these kind of like entities that um, that in ancient times people believed in that these were the everyone who created something had this um, entity which kind of vesseled the creativity through that person. And so when a person created something that was, you know, deemed as high value, um, everyone would go, oh, your daemon's awesome, and on the flip side of that, if um, they created something that wasn't very good, it wouldn't really matter because it wasn't on the, the onus wasn't on the person. It was on their I think the word is daemon, but I'm not sure. And she says that um, often in kind of modern times, we see the person as the creator, and this can kind of sometimes be a blessing and a curse because if the person creates something wonderful everyone you know we kind of put them on a pedestal which might feel really great for them but then they might never want to create anything again because the stakes are so high and similarly if they create something you know you write a great book and then a bad book well then you're a bad creator a, a bad artist and she kind of talks about um how this can create the troubled artist mm. you know that mm. that we all kind of know about these troubled artists that exist and maybe they create something, maybe they create a lot of things and maybe they die young or they never create again because it's so scary for them. Do you, do you want to talk about that? Do yeah. you believe in demons or muses?
0: Yes, absolutely. This idea of a creative intelligence which operates through us but is not directly of us is not exclusive to Vedic culture by any means. Um, so in Greek mythology... There were various forms of art and each form of art had its own minor goddess and the artist would pray to or worship the goddess in the hope that she would provide inspiration for their artistic endeavour and these goddesses were known as muses Um, and then the, the really old poets, the ancient poets and the Latin poets such as Dryden and Pope, they would write invocations at the start of their poems invoking the spirit of their muse to help them with their art. Ernest Hemingway had an understanding on some level of this same thing. He would say that he would write his book as long as the book kept writing itself. And as soon as he started writing it, he'd put the pencil down for that day. So yes, this is fascinating and it has some very important creative implications as you touched on. By giving authorship to consciousness or God or a goddess or muse, we start to create a slight sense of non-attachment which can be liberating in the production of art. And this may have been born out of an understanding that if you're pushing too hard egotistically at your work that it can start to block. So the idea of a muse goddesses or god or something assisting you or ultimately creating the work could be seen as a type of surrender technique and like all surrender mechanisms it's a deferring or delegating to that cosmic intelligence that organizes everything anyway to express itself fully through you without coming in and micromanaging the process so it's a way of allowing yourself to be a cleaner smoother fuller channel for the creative impulse
1: so it seems like there's two aspects of of create of living a creative life one of them being a channel in which creativity can come through you maybe by having a clean enough or calm enough nervous system. I don't really know if that's the wording for it. And then another thing is that creation can come through, but there might be so much fear that, you know, that they stay, they linger as ideas rather than actually being actioned in the world.
0: Yeah, exactly. So let's take this this example. Has this ever happened to you, Anna? You get a brilliant idea. It kind of blows you away for a minute. And then as sure as night follows day, in the next moment or the next minute, you have another thought questioning you. It's fear, saying, "Oh, actually, should we bother doing this? Um, is it going to be a waste of time? Somebody's already probably done it, and all these kind of things." And it can sabotage the whole creative process. Have you had that experience?
1: Absolutely, because when the creative ideas come through, it always comes through as a feeling of inspiration and like expansion. Um, and then, yeah, definitely, a couple of even even a couple of hours later coming back to the smaller self and kind of leaving that expansive inspired mode. Mm. Yeah, it can make it all seem very daunting.
0: Exactly. And that's why very, very few people truly allow that creative drive to flow through them and express itself fully. You know, you might get a trickle here and there. You might practice the guitar, do a bit of photography. But a lot of the time, you're putting more attention than that on trying to keep things the way they are and this is as a result of fear so i suppose to be useful here we should talk about what we can do to remove that fear
1: yes i think that's a great idea
0: so we can try and pick apart a few of these arguments that um that the mind might put forward um <clears> that blockers and make us scared of being creative one of them we've already covered the unknown turns out Getting stuck in a rut is what's actually dangerous and moving into the unknown is what actually makes us stronger and safer. I think we've probably hammered that point home a few times over this podcast series. So hopefully by understanding that we can push through when we feel that resistance to doing something new. Another fear which can get in the way of being creative is this deep fear that apparently we all have of dying before we achieve something significant. So, when we embark on a creative endeavor, it can come loaded with a lot of pressure on ourselves. Like, this is somehow, in some way, going to prove the relevance or significance of our existence. And that can be a paralyzing amount of pressure. But when we make that shift to recognizing that we're simply a channel for the creative impulse and not the author itself, that can remove some of that pressure. We can lose a bit of that fixation with the outcome and come more into the process, because regardless of how, whatever we're trying to make, you know, the book or the artwork or whatever turns out, the process itself has its value. Uh, It can help us grow and and we can just enjoy it. And then there's your classic self-doubt, which I'm sure gets in the way of lots of people's creativity. You know, that feeling that we're not good enough to produce anything of any real worth. But if we really believe this idea that it's actually consciousness that's the author working through us, then that gets us round this one, because we'd be doubting the creative capacity of consciousness itself. You see what I mean? So anyway, these are all different ways of thinking about it that might help us loosen up in our approach to doing something creative.
1: Yeah, that makes so much sense. So is, is self-doubt where procrastination comes in?
0: I think procrastination comes in as a result of fear. And it can be a result of any of the forms of fear that we just described. But procrastination in itself is a very interesting subject. There's actually a way of looking at it as a positive thing.
1: How's that? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, This is the idea that there's something natural about procrastination. As what it's really doing is building a propensity. It's accumulating the potentiality for a later, stronger, more powerful release. Imagine like an archer drawing back the bow. When you pull up the bow, you don't put the arrow in and pull up the bow and immediately just fire it, do you? You pull back the string, you get steady, you pull back the string as far as you can, get maximum propensity, and then you release at the target. And there's an argument to say that there's a natural tendency in the self to understand this and to work with those forces. This theory is based on the idea that creativity responds well to a deadline. So that's one of the reasons why I and you and probably lots of people listening to this can't help leaving things to the last minute. Or to put it another way, why we can't fully unleash our creativity until the deadline's right upon us. The suggestion is that it 's not about being lazy or disorganized so much as either knowingly or unknowingly working according to the laws of nature.
1: I can imagine that some people listening to this podcast might not um, see themselves as creative people. I think when we talk about creativity um, it 's easy to envision like an artist at their you know a, 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 at their canvas making a painting or someone, maybe a chef. But what are the other ways that people can be creative?
0: Yeah, this calls to mind um, a famous lecture by Gurudev, a two-word lecture or two or three-word lecture. Um, And the people that attended that lecture, I think there were very few who had specific artists' roles or creative roles, but it was relevant to all of them. And it's relevant to all of us. And the lecture was... Niva Tatvan." And that was it. People had travelled thousands of miles to hear this. It was over in a couple of seconds. Niva And what it means is... Go where you are not. Or transcend where you are. On one level, Gurudev is telling us to transcend the relative. To meditate. But on another level... It's a directive to be creative, because whether or not we're actually in a specifically creative role, it's so important for all of us to move in the direction of creativity, to move where we are not, to move towards the unknown. And this is because when we move into the unknown, or in other words, when we do things differently We're forced to adapt and interact creatively with new things, new situations, and so on. So this has the effect of making us more adaptable, more functional, more sophisticated. And that makes us stronger and more likely to survive. We actually need to be creative to survive. Doing the same thing over and over again isn't enough, as Darwin observed. It's not actually survival of the fittest so much as survival of the most creative, the most adaptable. So how can we be creative if we're not a creative type or in a creative role? It's hard to talk about specific things we should do. It's more about an attitude. So not being afraid to explore different experiences, trying new things, uh, and not just what we do, but how we do it. Not waiting for the world to change us, but instead causing the change those sorts of things this is niva tatvam
1: i feel like this almost needs to come with a precursor when we talk about um you know uh, moving into the unknown it that i feel like i've been there a lot over the re- recent times and it's can be really scary mm-hmm. <laughs> and um now looking back, um, I can I, I can see whoa. There's been so much beauty and adventure, and so much exciting, amazing stuff coming into my life. But for the for the first bit of moving into unknown, it's it can be really um, daunting. And so, do you think that while when you kind of make that decision to move into the unknown, you need to also be taking into account, account that? it might be uncomfortable for a bit and lean into that and continue to move into the unknown anyway.
0: Absolutely. I think it's always good. The point of these podcasts and any of this Vedic knowledge is to give us an awareness of things so that we can work with those things and not misinterpret them. Because if we weren't aware that it was a reflex reaction to be scared of the unknown, then we might interpret that as a clue or a sign that we're going the wrong way. But when we can see that it's an automatic, natural response, but not one that should be listened to, yes. that's when we start to correct the mistaken intellect through experience.
1: Yeah, my, my experience of moving into the unknown is like, there, there, there seems to be this knowing, this strong sense of knowing that's saying, and maybe that's charm, that's saying, go this way, go this way, go mm. this way, and it's really strong. And then you go there and sometimes that knowing kind of dims a little bit because the aren't because the doubt becomes so much louder and so it's somehow um somehow being connected remaining connected to that knowing maybe the knowing becomes a little bit quieter mm. and a little bit dimmer compared to the all the doubt and the fear but somehow holding on to it
0: yeah as the fear chemistry enters us it has that natural sense of narrowing our perspective and as our perspective narrows we focus in on a particular thing and that thing on its own can seem very important very scary yeah. and a good enough reason to block us the value in this knowledge is that as we recognize it in the moment it can allow us to rebroaden out our perspective and see the bigger picture in which the uncomfortable body sensations are basically a red herring.
1: Yeah. And why does it often feel in those places of the unknown that um, there's there's like an experience of grace, closeness with something larger?
0: Because you're taking consciousness's lead and it's leading you deeper into the experience of life, you're following the creation operator itself into a new area of experience it's where the universe wants to take you it's holding hands with you drawing you into that realm and this starts to build that sense of closeness or affinity or companionship that I think you're talking about
1: it seems like with creativity and newness and charm saying you know go this way one of the kind of intimidating things about it I find is that You can kind of always measure what you're leaving or, you know, what you're losing, say. Mm -hmm. But sometimes when it says, go this way, you can't see what it is you're about to gain. And maybe a couple of months later, it starts to make sense. But in that moment of the unknown, all you can see sometimes is what's left behind.
0: Yeah, this is the difficulty. (laughs) And um, this is the nature of transition. Transition between A and B, is usually chaotic (laughs) and quite difficult because the problem with transition is you've left A, point A, point B is better, but you can't yet see it. So what it relies on is trust. And trust is built over time through experience. To ask somebody to trust 100% without any experience to build that trust He's asking a lot. Trust is so important on this journey, but it needs to be built organically. So how I like to imagine the growth of trust is as a kind of spiral. We start out on the spiral trusting 10% because we don't yet dare trust 100%. We haven't got enough evidence or experience to allow us to make that kind of risk. So we trust that what's going to happen is good and the right thing, 10%. And this allows us a 10% capacity to let go and align with nature. And as a result, we get a 10% benefit from that. And at some point, if not immediately, it will be clear that that was a good thing to do. Now, maybe we're ready to gamble 20% trust. So we trust 20%. This gives us the ability to let go 20% and have 20% more alignment with consciousness, and get a 20% better outcome, which is evident eventually, and so on, until we get to the point where we have 100% trust, 100% surrender, complete alignment with what is and total elimination of suffering Mm -hmm.
1: and fear. So in terms of creativity, would that look like, okay, I'm sitting here or I'm going for a walk, a creative idea comes through and uh, I'm actioning it. There's no resistance anymore.
0: That's right. You start to take all the creative impulses, whether it is um, one to write a book, or if it's one to take a left turn down a street earlier than you might normally do. This is charm in all its various forms. Um, we've focused, you know, heavily on creativity today, which kind of we imagine expressing itself through a creative project, but creativity is every impulse of charm. That's the same thing. Charm is the creation signal beckoning you towards it.
1: Okay, and going back to what we were talking about before with the muses and the demons, kind of, um, you know, finding vessels for creativity through humans. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that, because this is what Elizabeth Gilbert says, she says that if, somebody doesn't take on that creative idea doesn't doesn't action it on earth Mm -hmm. it will move to somebody else because it needs to be expressed do you believe that
0: yeah that's the vedic view that um consciousness is looking for a nervous system to express its idea its creativity through and you may be the perfect vessel for that for that expression But if you have something blocking you expressing it, such as self-doubt or a mistake of the intellect or just general fear, then you will block that creative impulse and it will then move to another nervous system for expression. And you may even have had this experience where you've had an idea, you thought about it, and then you didn't do anything about it, and then someone else did it. I came up with an invention in England, um, must have been like 20, 25 years ago, and I didn't do it. And then I read in the newspaper a few weeks later, or maybe months, that a madcap inventor in East Midlands had done this exact thing. Mm-hmm. And so that was one example for yes, me. Yes,
1: I've definitely experienced that. Mm. Yeah. And it kind of sucks because you're like, oh, I should have done that. <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> um, so going back to this creative... Um, subtle realm that you were talking about, can you talk a little bit more about that? is 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 everything that that could be created in this world has that already is that does that all exist there, or is the creation always happening?
0: Ah, this is one of those questions where the answer depends on the state of consciousness of the perceiver. Um, from the average human state of consciousness, creation and creativity, is rolling out of the source continually into our field of experience, along with maintenance and destruction. And we see births, life and death in all things. But the Vedic view is that time is a construct through which our limited consciousness states can experience reality bit by bit. The highest reality is that everything is happening right now. Everything that ever has happened or will happen is happening right now. And in the highest state of consciousness... It could all be perceived now in one awareness.
1: And I guess today we've been focusing a lot on the importance of creation, but also through our conversations, it's important to remember that maintenance and destruction are are also very important.
0: Yes, they are all important. That's right. But what's important from our perspective here is where we put our attention. Mm. And this conversation is is designed to help people feel more inspired or motivated or remember to put their attention more on creation and creativity as the natural inertia will pull us as humans in this particular age of Kali Yuga back onto maintenance. So in terms of our interaction with these laws of nature, we need to have our attention and emphasis on creation.
1: Can we we move the conversation over to talk about artists now, like pop culture artists? Sure. So... I'm interested in how we kind of, as as a culture, the collective, we, we tend to sometimes deify artists, hmm. you know?
0: Yeah. And I think this is because we've lost touch with the true author, with consciousness itself. And so because many people, particularly in the Western world, Do not have any kind of relationship or recognition or acknowledgement of true creative intelligence, the true author of the art, that we create mini gods out of the vehicles of expression of the art. I think it speaks a lot to us looking to worship something, but not having access to the true source.
1: Is this inherently an unhealthy thing or, or is it kind of, it doesn't really...
0: It's all part of evolution. It's just natural. We do not have, or the majority of the planet does not have a consciousness capable of experiencing the more subtle layers of creation. And so it takes its natural tendency towards worship or awe to the things it can detect. So... The Vedic view is that nothing is ever wrong; um, things are just at different stages of evolution.
1: It's interesting to to note, like how many artists in the world who are creating such incredible, inspire like awe inspiring things, whether it's music or actors, um, or you know, painters. And so, on some level they must be really connected to that realm to be able to receive those ideas in the first place, right? They must have some kind of a connection. But then often in their private personal lives, it seems like things are falling apart and there's so many artists you can name as examples of this. So what's going on there?
0: That's a great question. Yeah, so for somebody to to conduct a creative impulse well for the nervous system and create great art they don't necessarily need to have a constant connection to that place of creative intelligence that's been accessed via a spiritual practice say so they can get intermittent spontaneous inspiration and then actually the rest of the time live in a body which is full of stress um with mistaken intellect and with no contact to that place. And you can see how naturally if you had the high of that creative experience and then that performance experience, say, how it'd be very hard to come back to a more mundane level of existence. You know, we, we know those examples of artists who suffer and it may be that there's a, a spiritual starvation going on there. And they're in withdrawal constantly from that sense of connection they get through their art. Mm. And they look to fill this void with drugs and alcohol. Mm. Um, But if you look at artists with long, sustaining careers, in almost all cases, you'll find that they have found their way at some stage to a spiritual practice, Mm. which allows them to have a more consistent experience of that connection.
1: Mm. And that seems to be key. Mm. So I guess like, I'm wondering why would a muse go through somebody, an artist that they didn't know would be able to sustain that that kind of create creation?
0: Um, because the value of something from the divine point of view is not based on longevity, uh. and for the reasons of variety and relatability. There need to be lots of different creative expressions which trigger unity in a wide variety of different people that are relatable to different people. And you need lots of different flavours of creativity through lots of different humans to reach
1: everyone. Okay, my next question. (laughs) Can you separate the art from the artist? What do you mean? Uh, So say, for example, Michael Jackson.
0: Oh, okay, yeah. That's a very good question. I've been involved in lots of discussions about this and similar kind of examples. Um, The whole question of whether you separate the art from the artist, you know, that kind of whole, that whole conversation um, is complicated and I wasn't really sure. So as I often do when I, I'm not sure and I'm stumped, I applied Vedic principles um, and that helped me get a bit of clarity around the Michael Jackson thing. At least for me. So let's see. Should we see if that works? So, can we separate the art from the artist? The Vedic view is yes, we can. So, let's just kind of recap on some of what we've been saying today. Where does any creative impulse, any song or painting or book or any creative idea at all come from? The pure, intelligent consciousness field. And consciousness is the author of all creativity and uses nervous systems such as yours or mine or Michael Jackson's to express them, to bring them to life. And we're just the channels for consciousness to create. So we as individuals, from this perspective, are in fact not the authors. Consciousness is. So immediately art and artists have a degree of separation, right? But consciousness communicates so much through us. It's not just one flavour. There's light and dark or creation and destruction, in Michael Jackson's case, there was clearly a lot of positive creative inspiration there. Because like all great art, his music triggered a wave of unity in many, many people. It translated an experience in his consciousness into the consciousness of others. It awakened an experience of joy in others. And these are all the hallmarks of that aspect of creative intelligence that drives evolution. But then there are the accusations against him, and let's assume them to be true for the purposes of this discussion. The Vedic view of these actions is that they were destructive. That is to say, they suppressed enlightenment and evolution and promoted ignorance. And of course, they caused suffering. So we have a human nervous system, Michael Jackson, that has both creative and destructive impulses moving through it. And the question is, do we stop listening to his music or even destroy the art that came through the nervous system of Michael Jackson? And there are many reasons why we might want to, depending on our own history. The music may trigger us because of associations and just basically be unenjoyable now. And also, we don't want to support unsustainable behavior. If we considered that in some way, listening to his music was supporting the actions we disapprove of then we wouldn't want to do that. In the case of Michael Jackson, given that he's dead, you could make a good case to say that listening to his music is not supporting unsustainable behavior. In any case, these are all totally valid personal choices. But if the music continues to spontaneously bring you joy, then the Vedic view would be that rejecting that would be a rejection of the gifts of consciousness itself. So you might say it's like a win for the devil a win for the destruction operators to ignore the beauty that was expressed through him and focus only on the darkness. So it's, it's miss assigning the authorship. You see what I mean? Yeah. It's a very tricky one and obviously very sensitive. Emotions and emotional reactions are valid too. So I'm not here to say what's right and wrong, but just one perspective.
1: And, you know, I, I wonder how that applies to someone also who's alive. Mm. Um. And maybe it's even more sense.
0: Okay, yeah. So if we became aware of someone's damaging or destructive behavior and they were still alive, and we believed that using their product would in some way support that behavior, then that's when we could assert our power as a consumer and boycott that person or that business. And that would be a personal choice.
1: Yeah, because people seem to be doing that at the moment with this council culture.
0: Yeah, that's right. So if you don't know, yeah, Cancel culture is where basically an organisation or a business or an individual does something considered morally wrong. And then there's like a movement to boycott that particular artist or person or business. Um, And this could be seen as a positive thing. You know, you could say that the public are holding businesses or individuals accountable morally. But it has a bit of a funny smell about it, I find, at least in its very prevalent current form. It's almost bullying, like that kind of gang mentality. Like we're demanding standards of maybe individuals or businesses that we couldn't actually meet ourselves. Um, So it has that bit, bit of hypocrisy and projection about it. And it tends to get, I think, like a lot of these things, fueled by the ego's favorite drug, righteous indignation. Because when you feel righteous about something, somebody else is in the wrong, you're in the right, the body creates and produces this certain kind of psychochemical um, or neurochemical, which makes us feel righteous indignation. It's one of the most addictive of all. And when you get a taste of it, you love that thing and you just want to get more and more of it. And I can't help but think that some of what we're seeing at play at the moment is a result of addiction to righteous indignation and wanting to be right rather than a pure intention to make the world a better place.
1: yeah. And it seems like it it makes the world quite a intimidating place to be in where you can't make a mistake.
0: Yes, it's creating more separation and opposition when the focus clearly needs to be on more unity. Mm. So it's coming under the flag of unity, but actually what it's creating is more separation. It's being hijacked.
1: Okay, well, that was very interesting. But... We are running out of time, so I think we should call it a day for now. Unless okay. you have anything else you'd like to say. I'm done. I'm really done <laughs> as
0: well. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks um, for listening. We'll be back soon. Lots of love and Jay Gurudev.
1: Jai Gurudev.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Very Vedic, produced by Liam Gordon with original music by Al Royale. If you have a question you'd like to ask or you'd like to learn to meditate, DM me at Bondi Meditation on Instagram or email me at infobondimeditation.com.au. At we'll be back with another episode soon. Until then, Jay Gurudev.